Now that the dust is clearing from America's midterm elections, it's time to take a sober look at how the global economy is doing. By many measures, such as growth and unemployment, things are going quite well. And yet there are plenty of clouds hanging over the outlook. A trade war, Brexit, emerging market turmoil, and Federal Reserve tightening, just to name a few. On this week's episode, one of the world's leading economists tells us what's going to be okay and what we should be worried about. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. Joining me as guest co-host is my colleague Peter Coy, who is the economics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek magazine in New York. Peter, glad to have you on. Thanks for having me. Now, this is a good time to take a break from politics and look at the global economy. We're fortunate to have someone with deep experience doing just that. Catherine Mann, Chief Global Economist for Citigroup, a position she's held since February. Before that, she was Chief Economist at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. She has also held positions at the Federal Reserve Board, Council of Economic Advisors, World Bank, and Peterson Institute for International Economics here in D.C. She's in our New York studio with Peter right now. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us on Benchmark. I'm really pleased to be here with you, Scott and Peter. All right. Well, let's start with the U.S. Now, just to get this out of the way, did you make any adjustment to your outlook after the midterm elections? We haven't done that yet. Um, the schedule for our outlook um, actually goes into a 2019 review, and there are a number of issues that need to be addressed that actually aren't related to the outcome of the midterms. In particular, there is this question about the so-called fiscal cliff that is uh, actually in the 2020 data, but it becomes an issue in 2019. So what that's all about is that because of the budget rules, when the budget was originally passed in the early part of this year, there were some rules that with a certain number of votes that were cast, there had to be caps put on spending, uh, and those caps bind in 2020. Now, what that means is that, according to our current projections, the U.S. growth would be 2.8% in 2019 and then would drop to 1.8% in 2020. That's why we call it a fiscal cliff. Now, that's predicated on these caps binding. Now, one of the things that we've learned is, is that on a bipartisan basis, when caps like this bind... Both parties agree they don't think it's a good idea for them to bind in a presidential election year. So we are currently reevaluating the trajectory for U.S. growth that goes for the rest of this year, of course, but also into 2019 and 2020. And the trajectory could be different depending on whether or not we see the fiscal cliff binding or whether we think the fiscal can will be kicked down the road. Related question, would you then think that the U.S. is likely to be an engine of growth for the world economy in 2019? And, and, and what about 2020? Well, the thing that uh, in 2019, we, of course, still have quite a bit of the fiscal stimulus, both the tax cuts and the spending. Those are still playing a very important role in the driving U.S. growth in 2019. And 
whether or not that becomes an engine for global growth depends a little bit on the configuration of trade policy. It also depends a little bit on what might be happening with financial markets and potential turbulence in financial markets coming from normalization of monetary policy. In other words, what the Fed decides to do. Well, then let me jump right to a Fed question. Do you think the Fed will be able to keep the expansion going in 2019 by preventing overheating without accidentally causing a recession? So there's a lot of fiscal stimulus in in the U.S. economy uh, next year, as I as I said, and so the risk of uh, overheating is a little bit more than the risk of recession. And even if the Federal Reserve keeps on the path that we think that they're going to do, there's still plenty of momentum in the U.S. economy. I think one of the things that's most important when thinking about the challenges that the Fed faces is that on the one hand. Uh, they need to move on the path of moving the policy rate. That's the so-called Fed funds rate. It's uh, That's the thing that they more or less control. It's the thing that they talk about at each one of their meetings. And they need to increase that rate sufficiently to ensure that risk is properly priced in financial markets. Right now, when we look at the financial markets, we can see, for example, very risky investments uh, that are that don't carry extra return. The way it's supposed to work is that if you're, it's a risky investment, you get a little more return for it. And right now, we just don't see that happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the financial markets have not yet priced in uh, the full range of policy moves that the Federal Reserve says that they're going to do in 2019. Uh, there may be turbulence associated with the repricing of risk. Uh, That's also, it could be in the equity markets, it could be in the high-yield bond markets, uh, it could be in exchange rates. There are a number of different places where we might see a repricing of risk, but, but that could cause financial turbulence. And what matters is, from the standpoint of what the Fed has to worry about, is does that financial turbulence feed back into the real side of the economy? So, so we've already seen some of that in the last few weeks. Is that do you, do you think that's actually going to happen, or do you see how much of a risk is it? So we've we've certainly seen some financial turbulence. That's absolutely true. And one of the things that that we look at very carefully is will that financial turbulence feed back into the decisions on the part of businesses to continue on the, their path of investment, and will consumers? look at financial turbulence and say, wow, I'm not sure I want to open my pocketbook for Christmas. So this this response of, of real side business investment and consumer decisions to financial turbulence is a key element of something that the Fed pays attention to. It's something that we're looking at. Now, what do we do and what have we seen? So what we've seen is, by looking at the data is that consumers, by and large, are ignoring what's happening on Wall Street. They don't, most of us don't have large wealth portfolios. And so when, you know, the stock market goes up, they don't feel richer. When the stock market falls, they don't feel poorer. So what they care about mostly is do they have a job? Are they getting a good wage? And of course, we can argue about whether or not the wages are high enough, but certainly employment conditions are very good. And so consumers, by and large, are feeling pretty good, sentiment is pretty good, and they are spending. 
business investment, we can also make some distinctions between firms that are domestically oriented and basically don't care about Wall Street because maybe they borrow from a bank, but that's about it. And those businesses are feeling better now than they have for a decade. Uh, they see the demand around them. They see the de- that they're having trouble hiring workers. So they're they're investing. They're investing in capital that either complements the workers that they hire or substitutes for the people that they can't hire. So that group of business is continuing to invest. The wild card uh, is the businesses that are globally engaged, and so they're very worried about trade. And they're also financially market engaged, and so they're very worried about turbulence. And so watching that set of firms really carefully about do they pause their investment decisions or do they power through what is a turbulent external and financial environment? That's really the key for the prospects for the U.S. economy going forward. Catherine, let's turn to the trade war. Mm-hmm. You mentioned it briefly. What's it doing to the U.S. economy and what's it doing to the Chinese economy? Well, let's talk about China first because what we've observed is that the Chinese economy was slowing before the trade war started to heat up. Uh, now, Part of the slowing in the Chinese economy was expected. The policymakers there were undertaking a strategy of trying to clean up the financial system and to consolidate the state-owned enterprises, consolidate them at least a little bit. And so we expected and they expected that uh, fixed investment would start to decelerate. What they had hoped was that the consumer would buoy up the economy, so investment would decelerate, consumers would accelerate, and that that would rebalance the economy towards a more consumer-oriented economic growth rate, which is something that they've been intending to do and wanting to do for a while. Unfortunately, what happened was that consumers started to look at their wealth portfolio, looking at real estate in particular, and they saw that real estate prices were coming down. So they said, I have a wealth shock. Secondly, the constraints in the monetary, trying to control the monetary side of the economy, was uh, hurting small businesses relatively more than the state-owned enterprises. And those small businesses were starting to uh, shed workers, were starting to fire workers. And so consumers, rather than buoying up the economy, were concerned about employment and they were concerned about their wealth. And so they decided to decelerate consumption. So instead of consumers buoying up the economy, they also were decelerating. So you layer on top of a decelerating investment climate, a decelerating consumer climate, you layer on top of that a trade war, mm. and the Chinese economy's got problems. Yeah. Now, they have implemented a wide range of policies to address both the investment side as well as the consumer side and some special policies uh, to try to deal with the trade side as well. But uh, it is the case that the economy is slowing, and they are working hard to, uh, to change their trajectory to resume growth. And what about the U.S. economy on the, and the trade war? Right. So on the, on the trade war for the U.S. economy, what we've seen is, is that the impact on the growth rate in the U.S. economy is, not, is really almost irrelevant. On the one hand, the 
there is some substitution. In other words, instead of buying an import, you buy a little bit more of on the domestic production. But on the other hand, you know, there has been trade retaliation as well. And so what that has done is has tended to unwind any benefits that might come from the uh, from the trade war. It's also the case that, frankly, the U.S. economy is much more of a closed economy, uh, buying and selling uh, internally, and is much more services oriented, which primarily is uh, locally produced. So on the sort of the GDP side of things, there's not a lot of uh, evidence that the trade war has had much of an impact. Now, on the other hand, on the inflation side of things, we are seeing an impact of the tariffs uh, coming through, uh, particularly the intermediates. Remember, there's a lot of uh, tariff put on steel and on aluminum. We are starting to see some of the impact of some of the other tariffs that were more recently put on, the 10 percent tariffs. Uh, with the prospects for the 25% tariffs to be put on the $250 billion worth of Chinese imports. We are starting to see um, some pressure uh, coming up uh, on inflation. And uh, the question going into 2019 is how much of that bubbling up of inflation that we see coming uh, up through the cost of production when will that start to emerge on the top line in core inflation and headline inflation? And we think that coming into the first of the year, that one of the important changes from 18 to 19 is that in 2018, companies had a tax windfall. They got this big tax cut, and it wasn't expected. And they're able to use that tax windfall to protect their margins this year. Next year, they'll have a lower tax rate, but they won't have a tax windfall. And so they'll have to start making a decision. Do I pass through these uh, tariff increases, this tightness in the labor markets? Do I pass that through? And they certainly have been talking about it a lot. You can read the Beige Book, earnings calls, uh, surveys. There's a lot of talk uh, that firms are testing the waters for do I have pricing power, really tight market situation that they're facing. Uh, that's one that is conducive to having pricing power. Catherine, China, going back to China, its currency keeps falling. Can China afford to let the yuan depreciate to above seven to the dollar in 2019? Well, there are a couple of different ways of thinking about this that, that I think is important. One is that a lot of the Chinese uh, products are invoiced in dollars. The trade products, they're in, the imports and the exports are both invoiced in dollars. So the renminbi doesn't really affect that. Okay, And the renminbi to dollar is not the only exchange rate that the Chinese should care about because, of course, a major customer is the euro area. And so when the RMB depreciates uh, against the dollar, appreciates against the euro. So it, there's a little bit of a, of a wash there. And as I said, the, the, the invoicing also uh, essentially uh, offsets some of the uh, exchange rate effect. The other thing to consider, though, uh, and is certainly a relevant and probably more relevant question, is how does the RMB dollar affect the financial side of the economy. The Chinese enterprises have borrowed a lot in dollars, 
And so when the RMB dollar uh, changes, that is a direct hit on the financial side of the economy. And so if we think about the balance of risks to the Chinese economy, the, the risk coming from the financial side and the much more costly servicing of dollar debt in the face of a depreciation of the RMB, that financial risk offsets whatever they might get sure. on the trade side. So a lot of people think that seven yuan to the dollar is sort of a red line. Is that? So that that sort of has been put out there as an important watershed for uh, many people. The view of the uh, our our folks in 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 who are closest to the situation there is that uh, that not that shouldn't be thought of in so strong a, okay. a terms. Yeah. All right. All right. And then one other question uh, again on China. You talked about how it's slowing down, right. but how much will it slow down? Will China's Chinese leaders put deleveraging on hold next year to keep growth from falling below six percent? Well, they've already started to. Um, sort of dial back some of the things that they were doing uh, directly associated with uh, trying to uh, clean up the financial sector. So that has already um, kind of the trains left the station on that one. So and they're and they're definitely trying to focus uh, credit um, allocation more to the private owned enterprises, the ones that have been constrained the most by the policies that they had in place to try to, again, the objective was to clean up the financial sector. So there's a little, there's definitely a dial back on that. And as I say, there's uh, also a a wide range of uh, what ends up being fiscal policy, uh, tax cuts uh, to promote consumption and consumption uh, support through various other types of taxes, and then some relaxation of constraints on bond issuance by local government. So these are all fiscal policy measures that are also being put into place. The view is is that um, these are going to be sufficient to offset the um, deceleration that's coming from investment and consumption. Um, and we shall see. We shall see. They have a range of policies that they've been able to implement in the past. I think, I think we all, all appreciate that the effectiveness of those policies – uh, tend to be less effective as you know as you use them over and over sure. again, and so there is some concern about the effectiveness of the of the policies going forward. But would your estimate be that China will maintain growth of six percent or better in twenty nineteen, at least reported? That's that's we certainly have um, yeah. we certainly have better than six percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Catherine, the U.S. and China, obviously the two biggest parts of the world economy. But I did want to try to hit a few other uh, places before we wrap up on our podcast today. Quickly, on Japan, it still is the third largest economy. Are they on the road to revival or are they going to be stuck in low growth, low inflation for the foreseeable future? So the economy has been doing better. They have achieved more positive rates of growth. They've achieved some positive inflation, um, sort of gotten out of the deflation slump. One of the important ingredients to getting to them, uh, to getting to that point is the Olympics, 
The Olympics have been an important driver of business investment. Now, we are hoping, and and they are having in place the policies to make that catalytic. In other words, uh, not just a one-off shot to to do investment for the Olympics, but to catalyze more generally positive rates of growth. They, of course, face a big um, challenge associated with their desire to put their fiscal accounts on a sustainable trajectory. Of course, a component of that is the uh, value-added tax uh, increase. And now the plan is to put into place a variety of mechanisms and other fiscal policies that would um, offset, to some degree, the consequences of the value-added tax cut. But of course, if you do that, then the sustainability of the fiscal trajectory is also put at risk or, or not improved so much. So they definitely face some problems going forward to achieve um, a, uh, a path out of their current uh, fiscal situation. Staying in Asia, what do you make of the clash between Prime Minister Modi of India and the nation's central bank? The Indian Central Bank has really achieved quite a bit of independence over the years, and that's been an important anchor to support the growth in India. And the the lessons that we've learned from a number of different episodes over the years is is that uh, it's important to have uh, a good relationship between the government and the central bank, uh, one that respects uh, each other's uh, sets of policies, and that uh, the independence of the central bank is a, is an underpinning of a stable macroeconomic uh, growth trajectory going forward. So, you know, it's it's one thing for for politicians to kind of comment on on central bank. Uh, independence and central bank, what the central bank is doing. There should, you know, communication is always reasonable, but but um, you don't want to undermine the independence of the central bank. All right. Well, let's go from one hotspot to another. Over to Europe, uh, a couple of issues weighing on the European economy, Brexit and Italy. What do you see as the percent chance of a uh, Brexit that produces no deal. Uh, you know, what, what's going on right now and what, what kind of result do you see happening um, for both the UK and the broader European economies? From day to day, we get different pieces of information about what the prospects are for, for Brexit. It's, it's a little bit like watching grass grow. So it might have even changed while we're while we're talking right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's when I describe the the shape of the distribution of uncertainty about Brexit, it's a flat distribution. In other words, it's how do you make a bet because you have no idea exactly how it's going to to end up. So, it's a slow burn. It's a slow burn and then there will be an outcome. Now, of course, the outcome might be we stop the clock at 11:59 and allow for further consideration. And I think that there is definitely that possibility because nobody, I don't think anybody, frankly, really wants a hard Brexit. And they want to have some resolution of what what a new relationship might look like. And that puts the um, higher probability on 1159. Italy. Italy and the European Commission are butting heads over Italy's budget deficit. Will the two sides find a safe face-saving way out of their conflict? Well, I think the, the, the avenue that provides the best opportunity for both saving face, but also, of course, much more importantly, having Italy return to some, uh, to return to growth, 
which of course is critical for them to achieve any kind of debt reduction, is you have to have growth. It's the denominator and all the ratios that everybody cares about, debt to GDP, deficit to GDP. So you have to have growth. So the way you get to uh, both growth, which is the most important thing, but also saving face, is to have a discussion about what's below the top line. In other words, the fight is about the top line, meaning the deficit to GDP ratio. And um, that number is not nearly as important as what are the policies that are below the top line, because some policies are going to be more effective in helping the economy grow than others. And I, I would like to see more discussion about those set of policies, the ones that will um, satisfy both some of the political issues, but also will ultimately get the economy to grow, because no politician's going to win on an economy in recession. Catherine, let's go back across the Atlantic to Latin America. Two key economies in this hemisphere, Brazil and Mexico, they've both just elected new leaders in recent months. Mexico's is on the left. Brazil's is more on the right. What does that mean for uh, the economic outlook in those countries? Well, I think we're still seeing how things are developing uh, in terms of uh, the approaches that these new leaders are taking in their economies. There is um, somewhat of a, on the Mexico side of things, somewhat of a positive in the the sense that, you know, next door to the United States, the United States doing relatively well. But there is some concern about the most recent initiatives uh, to to roll back the construction of the airport uh, and whether or not that might be viewed as a bellwether for some of the other policies that might be put into place there. So so there is more concern about about what might be the pathway for, for growth for Mexico and in particularly how the financial markets might react to that and therefore that feedback into the domestic economy or GDP in the economy. Um, for Brazil, even less information really, just, uh, you know, the government really just starting to be formed of course, there's uh, the the honeymoon period. Um, definitely some talk about uh, making some some of the fundamental changes on the fiscal side that are necessary to uh, have the f- uh, fiscal uh, side of the things being stable. I'm talking about the pension reforms or mini pension reform uh, that's would have been well known across various uh, even before the election that this was that was crucial for Brazil. So we're getting, you know, we're getting some some initial thoughts about that coming from the uh, administration, but it will depend on on how things work out. I think with Latin America in general, not just those two countries, but also more broadly, different parts of the uh, of the region are more associated with the United States. Others are more associated with the dynamics in China, and because there's so much of a divergence between what's happening uh, on the top line GDP range of things for the U.S. versus China, that that's going to create a divergence of growth rates in Latin America as well. That's something to watch. Emerging markets, we see falling currencies, surging interest rates. What is the outlook for the next 12 months for the emerging markets? I'm not a believer in aggregates. I think that's, I sort of talk about the top uh, top line versus uh, what's underneath for the Italian budget, you know, divergence within Latin America. And so the emerging markets are exactly the same. They they cannot be bulked up into one mm-hmm. unit. And, and the problem is, is that they have. 
there's the MSCIEM. And so, you know, somebody says, I want to take exposure to the emerging markets uh, in my portfolio. And so they buy into the MSCIEM. And uh, so that means all the money goes in and then all the money comes out. And what one of it, just to be very uh, specific in terms of thinking about how might the trade shock affect different countries in Asia? Well, it affects the different countries very differentially, depending on how they are linked up to China through the global value chain. That's sort of the first way of looking at it. But then secondly, which countries might be a source of supply if buyers can't buy from China anymore. So uh, that's a second round. And then a third is, of course, who's most exposed to dollar appreciation. Uh, it's the financial side of things. So so the emerging markets are, are really a heterogeneous group based on trade relationships, uh, based on their exposure to uh, principally dollars uh, in terms of their um, obligations, and so it really warrants a, a much more uh, much more disaggregated view of of countries in order to decide who's going to do relatively better than others. Catherine, we've covered a lot of ground here. What's the bottom line? Will 2019 be a good year or a bad year for the global economy? I think I know what your answer is going to be. <laughs> well, I recently wrote a piece um, that was titled. Some basis for optimism, question mark? Yes, but. The financial turbulence and the external accounts through trade remain the dominant narrative. And we do see sources of domestic resilience, uh, particularly in the United States, sources of domestic demand, those internally oriented firms, the ones that are really powered by a strong consumer that's uh, low unemployment rates, rising wages. That source of domestic demand we actually see replicated in a number of countries uh, in, in Europe and, and even and even in Japan. But, you know, what really matters, you know, that that's a, that's extremely important. Those are sources of optimism, but the trade turbulence and the financial turbulence do remain the dominant narrative into 2019, and so the prospects are um not as not as hopeful as as we might think. All right, Catherine Mann, Chief Global Economist at Citigroup. Thanks so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Peter, you're at at Peter Coy. And our guest, Catherine Mann, is at C-L-M-A-N-N. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Thanks for listening. See you next time.